Brought to you by GSK. Learn about commercial coverage for Shingrix, Zoster Vaccine Recombinant Adjuvanted, by visiting coverageshingrix.com. Hello and welcome to the Annals of Internal Medicine, February 7th, 2023 podcast. Hard to believe that it is already February, but it is. Happy Year of the Rabbit to everyone who recently celebrated the Lunar New Year. I'm Dr. Christine Lane, Annals Editor-in-Chief, and I'll be giving you a quick overview of the new material that you'll find if you go to annals.org. Depression, or at least clinical recognition of depression, is increasing in prevalence, and it is critical that physicians recognize it and are well-informed about effective treatment strategies. So my colleagues and I are pleased to publish an update of the American College of Physicians guidelines summarizing clinical recommendations for non-pharmacologic and pharmacologic treatments of adults in the acute phase of major depressive disorder. In the updated clinical guideline, ACP recommends the use of either cognitive behavioral therapy or second-generation antidepressants as initial treatment in adults with moderate to severe major depressive disorder, and suggests the combination of both as an alternative initial treatment option. The guideline and supporting evidence reviews are all available at annals.org. ACP also suggests initiating cognitive behavioral therapy in adults with mild major depression, and the recommendations stress the importance of informed decision-making that incorporates patient preferences when selecting treatment. In summary, the ACP recommends monotherapy with either cognitive behavioral therapy or second-generation antidepressant as initial treatment in patients in the acute phase of moderate to severe major depressive disorder. This is a strong recommendation with a moderate certainty of evidence. ACP recommends combination therapy with cognitive behavioral therapy and a second-generation antidepressant as initial treatment in patients in the acute phase of moderate to severe major depressive disorder. This is a conditional recommendation with a low certainty of evidence. ACP recommends monotherapy with cognitive behavioral therapy as initial treatment in patients in the acute phase of mild major depressive disorder. This is a conditional recommendation based on low certainty evidence. ACP recommends one of the following options for patients in the acute phase of moderate to severe major depressive disorder who did not respond to initial treatment with an adequate dose of a second-generation antidepressant switching to or augmenting with cognitive behavioral therapy, switching to a different second-generation antidepressant or augmenting with the second pharmacologic treatment. ACP emphasizes that decisions about treatment options should be personalized and based on discussion of potential treatment benefits, harms, adverse effect profiles, costs, feasibility, patient-specific symptoms, such as insomnia, hypersomnia, or fluctuation in appetite comorbidities, concomitant medication use, and patient preferences. The guideline is based on an accompanying comparative effectiveness living systematic review and network analysis and two additional rapid reviews on values and preferences and cost-effectiveness analyses completed by the ACP Center for Evidence Reviews at Cochrane, Austria. ACP's Clinical Guidelines Committee is planning to maintain this topic as a living guideline with literature surveillance and periodic updating of the systematic review and the clinical recommendations. An accompanying editorial from the University of Toronto calls ACP's guideline a step in the right direction with its focus on the patient's role in shared decision-making around depression. However, the authors point to important gaps in the recommendations with regard to non-pharmaceutical approaches to treatment. 
The authors also suggest that physicians need more information about helping patients safely discontinue medications without suffering from potentially severe withdrawal symptoms. Like depression, knee osteoarthritis is a very common condition. Next is a randomized controlled trial comparing high and low-dose exercise therapy for patients with knee osteoarthritis that found that both types of exercise therapy produce similar outcomes in pain, function, and quality of life. Although high-dose therapy provided superior outcomes related to function in sports and recreation in the short term. The preferred treatment for knee osteoarthritis is exercise therapy, including self-paced exercises set by the patient and a physiotherapist. The type, intensity, duration, and frequency of these exercises can be categorized as low or high dose. Studies of other patient populations with conditions including diabetes and cardiovascular disease have demonstrated positive dose-response relationships to exercise. Using a non-superiority design, researchers from Sweden and Norway randomly assigned 189 persons with knee osteoarthritis with pain and decreased function to either low or high-dose exercise therapy to compare exercise dose response with regard to knee function, pain, and quality of life. The researchers hypothesized that exercise at a higher dose would produce superior outcomes in this patient population. Results were measured using the knee injury and osteoarthritis outcome score biweekly for three months and then again at six and 12 months. At all follow-up periods, scores improved in both groups, findings that did not support the author's hypothesis that higher-dose exercise would be preferable. The only difference favoring high-dose exercise were in the domain of knee function during sports and recreation over the short term. The authors note that high-dose treatment could be preferable to low-dose treatment in the long run for people who lead active lives. However, adherence could be an issue as those in the low-dose group had nearly perfect adherence to the intervention while the high-dose participants had a higher dropout rate. Influenza viruses are classified into types A, B, C, and D. Types A and B are classified further into subtypes according to which single hemagglutinin and neuramidase they have of the many possible. Only two subtypes of influenza A virus, H1N1 and H3N2, are currently circulating in humans. But numerous subtypes of influenza A virus have been found in wild, aquatic birds, wild waterfowl, and poultry. These subtypes are known as avian influenza viruses. Occasional transmission of avian influenza virus from birds to human does occur, but subsequent transmission from human to human has occurred rarely and has been limited when it does occur. Extensive transmission from human to human would be a global public health concern. Recently, new subtypes of avian influenza virus with the H10 hemagglutinin have been identified. The first reported human infection of the H1N3 subtype occurred in a patient in Jingsu Province, China in April 2021, and there was no recognized human-to-human transmission. Annals now publishes a case report of a second human infection with this subtype of avian influenza virus. Go to annals.org to read about this interesting case. It occurred in a 32-year-old man whose medical history was remarkable only for a history of fatty liver disease. He raised chickens and ducks at home and worked in a slaughterhouse that processed sheep. Many patients who have implantable cardiac defibrillators or ICDs fear MRIs, thinking that they will interfere with the proper ICD function. Researchers from Johns Hopkins Hospital conducted a prospective study of 629 persons with non-MRI conditional ICD devices after undergoing MRI. 
the authors found no direct evidence of ICD failure to deliver therapy. They note that a substantial patient population with non-MRI conditional ICDs currently exist with continued inequities in access to clinically indicated MRI examinations, likely from continued perceived risk of MRI in patients with these devices. The authors suggest that their study provides additional safety data for this patient population under a standardized imaging protocol. In spring and summer 2022, an outbreak of MPOX occurred worldwide, largely confined to men who have sex with men. There was concern that MPOX could break swiftly into congregate settings and populations with high levels of regular frequent physical contact, like university campus communities. Fortunately, the MPOX outbreak was quickly brought under control, but it is important to be prepared should another one occur, and college campuses are one setting in which interventions to prevent widespread transmission would be sorely needed. Researchers from Yale School of Public Health created a model of MPOX transmission in 6,500 college students in both low- and high-risk MPOX transmission groups. The model considered persons to be in and move among the following categories, susceptible, exposed but non-infectious, infectious, or recovered, and produced 1,000 simulations of MPOX transmission. The authors found that the model estimated an 83% likelihood of sustained transmission, or 183 cases on average, if no detection and isolation efforts were implemented. However, in scenarios when detection and isolation were implemented for 20, 50, or 80% of cases, the average infections would fall to 117, 37, and 8, respectively. The number of average infections were further reduced in scenarios using both reactive and preemptive vaccination. According to the authors, because their model shows that simple interventions could be highly effective in reducing both the likelihood and the magnitude of potential outbreaks, administrators should have a plan for handling potential MPOX outbreaks. Significant efforts have been made in the past to promote open science and data sharing in clinical research. The argument is that data sharing could promote transparency and understanding of the results, honor the participation of individuals, and enable new discoveries. The White House Office of Science and Technology Policy recently updated guidance requiring results of federally funded research be made immediately available, and federal agencies have begun to draft policies that outline expectations of its awardees. For example, the National Institutes of Health has released a new policy for data management and sharing that took effect in January 2023. The authors of a new commentary and annals believe that the NIH policy lacks critical detail. Without additional guidance and resources, the commentary authors believe that NIH policy is likely to result in a box-checking exercise that is frustrating to all parties. For shared data to be actually useful, the authors argue that the NIH should provide specific guidance to address five important questions. One, what data should be shared and for what purpose? Two, what is meant by reproducibility? Three, what metadata should be shared? Four, what is needed for data sharing to lead to generative science? Five, what are the immediate and ongoing resources needed to support data sharing? The authors, like the editors of Annals, hope that ultimately data sharing will be conducted not simply to meet a requirement by a funder, but towards a goal of generating meaningful, reusable data that can help us better understand and protect health. The recent release of ChatGPT has made artificial intelligence systems a topic of frequent discussion. The authors of another new commentary in Annals compare AI systems used to play the game of chess with those developed for use in healthcare. 
They note that one reason for AI's success in chess is that the rules of chess are well-defined, thereby allowing AI-based chess systems to learn easily which strategies optimize outcomes. In contrast, AI systems in healthcare have been considerably less successful. One might think there is not much more to be said about the complete blood count. It was developed about 85 years ago and is ordered several hundred million times a year in the U.S. However, the authors of the next article have a lot to say about how the CBC could be improved. They note that today's typical CBC reports 19 different values. Some of these values are unnecessary because they are redundant or inconsequential and can cause harm by distracting clinicians and create unnecessary patient concern when a patient sees a clinically irrelevant value that is outside the normal range. Go to annals.org to read the commentary. I also urge you to watch the brief but very engaging Author Insight video that accompanies the commentary. February 3rd was National Women's Physicians Day in the U.S. Happy belated Women's Physicians Day to all women physicians who are listening. I wish we could celebrate with balloons, ice cream, and flowers. Instead, we offer a troubling but insightful commentary by Dr. Lucy Lakeham. In 2019, Dr. Lakeham filed a federal lawsuit against her then-employer, alleging both a violation of the Equal Pay Act and their retaliation in response to her speaking up about her salary. Dr. Lakeham's experience clarified four key lessons critical to fighting gender inequity in the medical profession that she shares in this commentary. These lessons relate to the complexities of determining salary inequities and the limitations of relying on benchmarks alone, the need for greater accountability for unprofessional behavior, the need for stronger whistleblower protections, and the need for our profession to support our colleagues in preventing and navigating these circumstances. Annals in the American College of Physicians joins Dr. Leakham in advocating for these improvements to assure the collegiality central to excellence in patient care, medical education, and the development of leaders committed to equity. In their 2021 lung cancer screening recommendation update, the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force recommends screening based on categories of patient age and smoking history. Model-based strategies that select individuals for screening based on their personal lung cancer risk are likely to improve the effectiveness and cost-effectiveness of screening, but there is a need for further research on the benefits and harms of risk model-based screening. The next article offers such research. It reports a model that evaluates and compares the cost-effectiveness of risk model-based lung cancer screening strategies versus the USPSTF recommendation and explores optimal risk thresholds for screening. Risk model-based screening strategies were more cost-effective than the USPSTF recommendation and exclusively comprised the cost-effectiveness efficiency frontier. Specifically, the strategy of screening individuals with a 1.2% risk threshold had an incremental cost-effectiveness ratio of $92,279, yielding more qualities for less cost than the USPSTF recommendation, while having a similar level of screening across the population. The authors conclude that risk model-based screening is more cost-effective than the USPSTF recommendation, thus warranting further consideration. An accompanying editorial discusses the findings and cautions that we cannot assume that the results of simulation models will be replicable in complex real-world clinical practice. The editorialists emphasize the need to overcome barriers to lung cancer screening that balance trade-offs and effectiveness, efficiency, and equity. The role of vitamin D supplementation in people at risk for type 2 diabetes remains unclear. The next article is a meta-analysis that evaluates whether vitamin D supplementation lowers the risk of diabetes 
promotes regression to normal glucose regulation and is safe among people with prediabetes. Eligible trials were those specifically designed and conducted to test the effects of oral vitamin D supplementation versus placebo on incident diabetes in people with prediabetes. The primary outcome was time to event for new diabetes onset. Secondary outcomes were regression to normal glycemia and safety. The researchers found that vitamin D supplementation reduced risk of diabetes by 12% in intention to treat analyses. The authors concluded that in adults with prediabetes, vitamin D supplementation was safe and effective in lowering risk of developing diabetes and promoting regression to normal glucose regulation. The last article I will mention is commentary that argues that skilled nursing facilities discriminate against patients with opioid use disorder and that a skilled nursing facility's refusal to admit someone because they are medically treated for opioid use disorder violates the Americans with Disabilities Act, the Rehabilitation Act of 1973, and the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act. That brings us to the end of this podcast. I hope you will go to annals.org to read some of the new articles I've mentioned. Log in when you read, and the site will keep track of the articles you've read, and you can earn point-of-care, CME, and MOC credit by clicking on the CME MOC link at the top of the homepage. Thanks to Beth Jenkinson, Andrew Langman, and Bernie Turner for their technical support. Brought to you by GSK. Learn about commercial coverage for Shingrix, Zoster vaccine recombinant adjuvanted, by visiting coverageshingrix.com.